everybody. Welcome back to the Timsa Leadership Podcast. My name is Eric Claus, and I am honored to be able to be your host. This is the podcast where we have conversations with amazing leaders that are making a difference in people's lives. We believe here at Timsa that the most important person that you will ever lead is you, and we are thankful that you are joining us. Today's conversation is intense, it's powerful, and it is with one of Tennessee's most recognizable leaders, Chief Greg Miller. Chief Miller will be sharing his experience related to the Gatlinburg fires that occurred in 2016. This event was one of Tennessee's largest natural disasters in history, and I am thrilled to be able to share this with you today. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. I am so excited to be able to be here and be able to sit across from a great friend of mine, Greg Miller. And for those of you that don't know Greg, I'm gonna read you some of his accomplishments and I know you are going to be thinking, oh my gosh, I can't wait to hear this story that we're going to tell. But first and foremost, Greg, thank you for being here, my friend. Thank you for having me, I'm glad to be here. Uh, We're excited. Um, So I'm gonna read this to you and everybody. Your career started in 1990. You have been a paramedic since 1994. You were the program director for Walter State Community College. You went on to obtain your master's degree in education specialist. You completed a four-year fire officer program, which only 43 graduates from Tennessee were from. You are the chief of Sumner County EMS right now. And prior to that, you were Gatlinburg's fire chief. And Greg, you may not know this, but in 2007 is when my leadership kind of career started in Tennessee. And I think it was in Memphis I traveled. And you were the first speaker that I heard. And you were emceeing the event. And I remember being blown away. And we have become friends over the years. We've presented together. We're working on some projects. And besides all the accolades that I had just mentioned, you are known as a great person, a great friend, and a mentor to many of us. And what an honor it is to be here. So um, thanks, ma'am. Thank you. And, and hearing you say that, I'm like, wow, who's who's this guy? That's, um, that's a lot of accolades that, that uh, I'm, I'm just me. I probably don't deserve half of those, but I, I'm so appreciative of the friendships that this profession has afforded me over the last 30 plus years. It's been amazing. Yeah, it, it has been awesome to get to know you. And, you know, you're one of the most recognizable leaders in the state. And you know, part of that is, and, and this is a big deal, and I say it, but this the substance behind this, you are a board member for state EMS. You are a board member for the Tennessee EMS Education Association, who we're partnering with on this podcast, and then a board member of the Tennessee Ambulance Service Association. And um, so you you have modeled, and for us to be able to spend time together is awesome. I'll, I'll tell you, and you were part of the decision for this podcast, and I'm grateful. When this idea came to fruition, you were the first person I wrote down. As I said, I got to get with Greg because I've had a chance to hear your story and actually did it at a conference where I got to interview you and we ran out of time. And I was like, 
it, it was a no-brainer for me to hook up with you. So uh, I'm excited. So um, yeah, Greg, let's go ahead and just jump right in to this. So we're going to talk about your experience while you were Gatlinburg Fire Chief. And will you kind of share with the audience where Gatlinburg is for those that don't know it and kind of what it's known for? Absolutely. Gatlinburg is considered the gateway community to the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. And it's located in the Smoky Mountains of East Tennessee. Uh, it borders North Carolina, uh, right there in Sevier County. Um, and it has just become this tourism mecca uh, of East Tennessee. We're just outside of, of Pigeon Forge where Dolly Parton has her famous theme park called Dollywood. And just there's probably not a whole lot of people that would be listening to this that have never heard of Gatlinburg or Dollywood or some of those areas. But for those few who haven't, it's just really a, a southern gem uh, of, of scenery and shopping and experiences so you you really just thrust right into the mountains and everybody loves to come there in the fall when the leaves change and it's, it just has a lot of, of unique nuances that that draw people back there all the time. How many visitors a year versus how many residents live there? I was pretty amazed when I heard this from you before. Yeah you the uh, the average uh, census of permanent population people that live in the city of Gatlinburg is around 3,800 people, but there's millions of people who come through there every year, and it seems like every year they break the record, and they just keep raising that bar. Yeah. So, yes, it's it's absolutely busting at the seams. It's growing. It's thriving. I, I applaud their leadership because they're doing something right. And there's no interstate to get in. There no, there's no this. interstate. You can you can get to the 407 exit on I-40, but then you've got to trudge about another 25 or 30 miles to get to Gatlinburg. Yeah, absolutely. This is one of the things that you had told me that I – it took me a minute to get my head wrapped around, but you had shared that in a given day you could respond to the ski resort for an injury and you could run a shark bite shark bite attack in the same day what is that all about that and that you know what that is uh, a valid true statement um, so having a ski lodge in your community and and once it gets cold enough in the winter season and they start making their own snow and there's just tons of people who come there every day and ski and snowboard and snow tube and everything else so you get your injuries there but Gatlinburg is also home to uh, the Ripley's Aquarium of the Smokies, and and they have uh, sharks and all kinds of, of marine life that are in there. And so a lot of people don't think of it. There's someone who has to dive into those tanks and feed those mammals and, and do all that stuff. So there's been occasions where some of them have been nipped. And, and then outside of that, you know, you're in the mountains. There's the chances of snake bites and car crashes for these tourists, they don't realize that you get to a mountain community and there's not guardrails on all those roads. So you get some pretty significant motor vehicle crashes where they go 150 feet off of the edge of the road down a ravine. So it's if, uh, if you like variety, it definitely exists there. We've been there several times and it's great. In fact, we're heading there in a couple of weeks. Um, we'll be partnering again with a presentation and it is, it's a beautiful place. So 
uh, certainly everybody listening to us, look it up. And if you're ever in um, East Tennessee, you definitely need to check it out. So Greg, I, as we get ready to do this presentation and this talk, uh, I can tell you for those listening, this is emotional. This, there's, a lot, uh, there's a lot of feeling that's going to come out in this just because of the significance. And I shared with you before we hit record that I watched some videos last night of you um, doing interviews and I watched a video of a couple of people that were trapped by the fire that we're getting ready to talk about and my heart rate was pounding just to be there uh, in, in on the screen and, and to live that um, through the screen was amazing. But I want to read a couple of things and we're going to ease into the story because there's so many things to dissect. But for those of you listening, uh, this fire in the mountains there at Gatlinburg, it was one of the largest natural disasters in, this, in the state of Tennessee throughout history. And Greg, you were quoted by saying, this is a fire for the history books because it was something that we've never seen before. Absolutely. And, but what I wanna do, Greg, before we jump into this, because I, I know this, uh, we're gonna go deep into this conversation, but I want you to take us back, and it was 2016, on when you first learned that there was a fire in the mountains. Walk us through that day and what you were doing and what you learned about. Yeah, it'd be, it's very easy to do this because those, that is a, a time in my life that I'll never forget. Um, Monday, November 28, 2016, this is the Monday after the Thanksgiving weekend. Thanksgiving weekend is a very popular weekend for the Gatlinburg area. A lot of tourists travel in and they rent their cabins and they bring their turkeys and, and have their families in and, and they just do it differently than, than a lot of people. But I, I wake up early that morning to get ready to go to work and, and one of the last things I would do every morning before I would leave is I would take my dogs outside and walk them. I have two beautiful Great Danes and I take them out and I, actually they're probably walking me but we take them out and I notice that the sky is gray and it almost looks like it's snowing, but it's way too warm for that. Yeah. And I come to notice that these are bits of ash that are falling. And this is around 7.30 in the morning on November 28th. So I rush the dogs along and I get them back in the house and, and get in my, my chief vehicle and I head to headquarters. And on my way there, I, I reached out to the captain on duty, and I was like, do we have a big fire somewhere? I said, there's ash falling. And he says, yeah. He said, the phones are, are just ringing off the hook. Um, people's wanting to know what's going on. I said, will you call? This is the shift captain. I said, call into the park and, and see um, what's going on, see if there's anything that we need to be helping them with. So he, he called the park, and uh, I, I don't know exactly who the captain spoke to, but they said, yeah, we've, we've got a fire, but it's still in the park, and, and we've got it um, under control, um, and uh, we'll let you know if we need anything. So, again, that was between that 7.30, 8 a.m. Eastern time frame, um, and then about 11 o'clock they called back and said yeah this this thing's you know the weather's conditions are changing the wind's picking up so 
we might want you guys to to come meet with us um, in the um, Minot Park area and and have a conversation and we might have to thrust you guys in to start helping us at the border so that's that's when okay we were notified was it uncommon for fires to break out in the park? And what park was that great? This is the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, the most visited national park in the United States. Okay. Uncommon to have fires there? Uh, it is uncommon to have uh, big fires, but to, to truly set the stage, Tennessee was going through what was considered not an extreme drought, one level worse than that, an exceptional drought. We had not had any measurable, ra- measurable rainfall in, I can't even remember, but it was a, a significant number of days. So everything was really, really dry. And you take a national park, it's not like my lawn or your lawn where we're going to keep the leaves and everything out. So it's, it's natural for there to be a considerable amount of, of what the foresters would call duff or leaf litter that accumulates year over year over year. So all of that is really dry, and it creates a tinderbox. Wow. Okay. So you describe yeah. it's raining embers at that point. Um, you have a meeting with the park. Walk us through how things kind of progressed at that point. Yeah, we, we meet with the park, and uh, at that point in time, the, the wind was starting to pick up, and there was just small spot fires. Uh, the, the seat of the fire is still six-plus miles away from the city okay. when all of this is going on. So that's how far this ash and this smoke is being pushed from into the city so we meet with them and they're like just just kind of help us keep an eye on some of these spot fires because an ember it's not uncommon in, for an ember to blow a mile or further away from the actual fire and everywhere that one of these embers would land it's going to create a new fire so the crews were were in those areas and if an ember would land and it would start to catch the the leaf litter on fire they would begin to put that out and and wildland firefighting is not like uh, structural firefighting. You don't have a an engine and a hose everywhere that you go. A lot of times you're you're fighting fire with leaf blowers and you've got flappers and you're cutting trenches and doing those kind of things. It's more of a um, defensive attack than it is an offensive attack. Okay. So, Greg, let's go back and tell us the story about when it all changed because it happened very quickly. Describe that to us. And I will kind of start it out, and maybe this will help guide, would be it was almost hurricane wind winds that picked up that changed everything. Absolutely, and, and it was. Um, the weather all afternoon continued to deteriorate and what I mean by that is I'm talking about the fire weather. The relative humidity continued to drop, so the air was drying out. That makes it even more conducive for fire to spread. And then we weren't. We learned later that there was this weather phenomenon called a mountain wave that was coming into our area, and it produced wind gusts up to 87 miles an hour. The reason I say up to 87 miles an hour, there are many of us that were boots on the ground can say, well, that night it got much worse than that. But 
somewhere around the 8 p.m. time frame, a wind gust of 87 miles an hour came through, but it was so strong it took out the barometer weather station. So there were no wind readings and recordings after that. But we can tell you that it, it, it surely felt like it got worse than that. So that became the vehicle that drove this fire and pushed it. It was throwing embers. It was, it was bringing down power lines all over town. And each time one of those power lines would hit the ground, that would become a cause of a new fire. So, you know, we, at, at 6.10, approximately 6.10 p.m., that's when the fire crossed the border and came out of the park and into the city of Gatlinburg. And within literally a few minutes, we went from having no fire to having five to 10 to 20 structures that were on fire. And to put this in perspective, in seven hours and 52 minutes, a total of 2,545 structures were affected. That's more structures than most career firefighters will see in a 30-year career, and this is happening in less than eight hours. And the reason that those numbers are ingrained in my mind from 6.10 p.m., if you, if you map that out for seven hours and 50-some and minutes, the only reason it stopped then is because it started raining. And that rain was able to wet the ground enough that these blowing embers weren't auto-igniting with all of the uh, surfaces that they came in contact with. So when you walked outside, and obviously you were outside, I've seen pictures, but I, pictures don't do it justice. There was a glow in the sky. Yes. What was that like? Seeing everything around you and share with us that. Eric, it is hard to explain. It is such a eerie feeling of seeing that glow, of seeing that hue in the atmosphere change because of the layers of smoke and how they are a different color depending on how high they are and, and the, the light refraction of the sun and the, and the fire that's coming through there. It just gave an eerie feeling through town. And, and as we were going door to door our personnel the Gatlinburg Police Department personnel highway patrol personnel were going around door to door telling people to evacuate because you got to imagine most of the people that we're evacuating are not residents there so you know most people when they're on vacation they're unplugged so they're not as alert to weather or news or their happen their surroundings um and their situational awareness. So we were telling people you need to evacuate and they're like, why? So, well, cause there's, there's a fire coming out of the park and it's coming our direction. So it was a very eerie feeling. And then that feeling just worsened all night to the point that it was, it almost felt like Armageddon. There was so much on fire and it was surrounding the entire community and, and just every chirp of the radio would be calling out another structure on fire and another structure on fire. So you begin to think, wow, you know, how much worse can this get? Yeah. The video that I saw last night, Greg, that I shared with you was about 14 minutes, 14 or 15 minutes. And there were two gentlemen in a truck and they had a dog 
and they were filming the embers flying in the the orange sky with no lights and they decided to get in their truck and come down the mountain and every single residence that they passed was on fire and they were running over trees and it was intense and I, ha I, I share with you I had to do that because it's very easy to hear a story but when you see it and you realize how significant what it was I want to go back to your statement that you said 2,545 structures were burned in seven hours and 52 minutes. So these are people that are on vacation that, and we've all had the mindset, Greg, where we go on vacation, we're not thinking about emergencies. And that is hard to get my head around. At what point, or did you ever think, we're going to lose lives, and mine may be one of them. What was that like, knowing that you cannot get on the interstate and leave? Yeah, and, and before I answer that question, here was the challenge. When, when we're trying to ask people to evacuate, there is a, a lot of people are creatures of habit. And they might travel the same way home or to work every day. So when a disaster strikes, they're not really familiar for a plan B or a plan C or a plan D or all the way to a plan Z if necessary. So a lot of these people, they followed a GPS to get to a rental cabin. And the only way they know to get out is the same way they came in. Well, that way is now blocked because of downed trees or it's blocked by fire. So they would just park in the middle of the road and wait because they were turned around. They were confused. Cell phone service was down. Internet service was down. Uh, everything was being affected. So it was very much a, a difficult-to-win situation. So uh, hearing some of the reports of our fire crew personnel come across the radio and and that was one of my biggest challenges is I'm in a command post and I'm trying to help orchestrate this response and make sure that we're able to get as many people to safety as we can and at the same time keep our firefighters and our police officers and all of these people who are helping mitigate this disaster keep them alive as well and we're hearing reports that uh, a fire captain on a certain fire ground comes across the radio and he tells everybody on his fire ground to come get face down on the asphalt by the engine because the fire's getting ready to come over their head. And the radio goes silent for what seemed like an eternity. And four or five minutes later, that silence would break with the chirp of a radio and that captain would call out and ask for a PAR check or a personnel accountability report from his people. And one by one, this person says, I'm okay, I'm okay. And I can remember when that's going on, I can feel myself exhaling because I didn't, unconsciously I've been holding my breath the whole time because I don't know if I just lost a crew of 10 firefighters on this scene. And then no more than that time passes, I would hear another commanding officer on another scene because this is playing out all over town, which grew to a big part of the county. And I remember the report of, of bears that were running out of the woods and they were on fire and they're trying to escape and some of the firefighters would turn their hoses towards the bear 
not as much to put the bear out, but to keep some space between them and the bear. And, and the bears, that, that, that didn't run them off. That didn't scare them away. They, were, they liked the fact that they were being cooled down, and, and they were afraid that, that some of these bears were going to start snapping or biting at them because they were just in a state of fear. As you know, They were smart enough to, to run for their lives and, and get out of there. So that's just two of hundreds of scenarios that played out over a few days that you're thinking in your mind you know none of this stuff like this is in a textbook none of this stuff is in a chief officer preparatory class that you know what do you do if you're sitting in a room and you're being a commanding officer Uh, a mentor of mine the late chief alan brunacini from the phoenix fire department who's done a lot of great talks on leadership and customer service and everything he talked about chief officer ought to be able to sit in his buggy miles away from the scene and close his eyes and coordinate but that became one of my biggest challenges because I couldn't see what they were seeing and I couldn't be there because being a type A personality you want to be there and you want to help but I'm having to close my eyes in a command post a few miles away and I'm hearing the chatter and and my personnel would stop by the fire station to gather some more equipment or some more research resources and their faces would be sooted up black from all the smoke and stuff that they were fighting in. And <clears throat> I remember distinctly a, a couple of employees came in, they grabbed some resources and they were coming back out and, and the the uh, the tracks on their face where their tears had, had wiped away the soot. And, and I remember calling this one firefighter's name and I said, are you okay? And she said, we just drove by my house and, and it was completely engulfed in flames. And I said, are you okay? And she says, absolutely. I've got to go help others. I don't have time to worry about my house right now. And that scenario played out multiple times as well as these firefighters and these responders were having their own disasters that were affecting their own lives. They're losing everything that they had ever worked for, but not a single employee ever asked to be relieved from duty so they could go handle their own disaster. They fought. That's what EMS is. That's what public safety is, is... uh, everyone else's needs above ours so it's hard for me to even wrap my head around this greg so to summarize for everybody listening i i hope you really you may have to hit rewind but you are you're not sure if you're going to live or die you personally and then literally you are listening to the radio and you can walk outside and you are fearing that that may be the last time that i hear from my team was there a part of you that I'm sure the intensity and the weight of knowing that you wish you could pull everybody out because you know it's too dangerous, but the weight of what we do, we would do it anyway just because we're public service, but walk us through the intensity of how it was knowing that your team may die from the incident trying to save others it's just difficult most of us haven't had to experience that greg and you did for hours it's just hard for me to wrap my head around it but i would love to know a little bit more about your feelings with that it was definitely a a roller coaster of emotion because you're trying to play this systematic approach this rule book in your mind of how you do it and whether it's a, a wildland 
fire training that you had had or whether it was structural firefighting, now we've got all of that rolled into one. Mm -hmm. We've got multiple structures that are on fire. We've still got this wildfire that's that's blazing out of control. We've got these wind-driven embers. And, and if, if any of our listeners have never seen any of that video, then, then pull some of that up. There's a lot of, of footage out there. And when you see embers blowing in a firestorm at 87 miles an hour, it's unlike anything that you've ever seen. But you, you have to stay on task because even though you're like, wow, I never expected anything like this to happen. Well, you're in the moment now. And it really didn't resonate with me as much as it did a couple of weeks later when the emergency phase was over with and I was meeting face to face with all of my crews every shift just talking to them, making sure that their mental health was okay, making sure that they weren't too psychologically scarred from everything that they saw and witnessed and encountered. And I expressed to my crews how difficult it was for me to be in that command post. And it was almost a feeling of guilt that I'm in here and you guys are out there. And one of my employees stood up and he said, Chief, I'm glad that you were where you were. We needed you there to in a in an, an area that might have been a little calmer than it was out in that in the fire ground that they were on. He said because had you have been able to see what we were seeing, had you been able to have a glimpse of what you were sending us into, you wouldn't have sent us and a lot more people would have died. So that hit me. That hit me like a ton of bricks. And I was just like, well, I appreciate you saying that because you're right. You know, most leaders would have been like, I can't send them in there because that looks like a no-go situation or a no-win situation. And they pressed through a lot of areas in which they had to drive through fire, over trees. I can't tell you how many sets of tires we had to replace in that first week because these ambulances and these fire apparatus were driving over all kinds of, of down trees and debris and everything. But that, that statement that he made really brought it all home and brought it uh, to reality. To put this in perspective, just so I can say it out loud, and when I saw the video, it kind of came to reality. There was no way that you could try to put the fires out for the structures that were burning. It was just no way. They were, every one of them was on fire, and all you could see is fully engulfed homes. And the mission was rescue, I'm assuming, with the, uh, the visitors that are there and trying to get them to a safe place. So the emergency lasted, you said, about two weeks. Is that right? Yes. So you had several people from around the state that came to assist. Walk us through that. Yeah, we called for statewide mutual aid very early, around 11.30, the noon hour. Had we, that ever been done before? There had been mutual aid requested, automatic aid requested okay. across this state for other disasters, ice storms and tornadoes and things like that. But the emergency phase of things like that are typically a little slower. Okay. You know, a tornado doesn't stay on the ground for eight hours typically. Right. Um, so this just kept coming wave on wave on wave to the point that, you know, if you look at 
NFPA guidelines, which is what if you don't the, the National Fire Protection Association. Okay. So they, you know, they give guidelines and they give standards. So you know, there's there's a, a rule of thumb of how many firefighters you should have on the fire ground of a working structure fire. So it, let's just take the number of 15. If 15 is the ideal number of firefighters to have per structure fire, just to have enough resources, to have enough people inside and outside and, and being able to rehab them to where they're not overexhausting themselves and, and creating a situation where they're prone to a heart attack or a stroke event or anything like that. So if you multiplied 15 firefighters per fire ground times 2,800 or 2,545 structures, we would have been required to have 38,175 firefighters. The state of Tennessee stepped up. We have a phenomenal mutual aid plan. Our partners at TEMA did a great job of, we sound the alarm and they, they got into the logistics side of it and, and putting that plan to action. And we got several thousand responders that came to us and they started rolling into town that afternoon, the, the closest geographically. And then I would start seeing over the, the next several hours fire apparatus from Nashville rolling in and ambulances from Nashville and Middle Tennessee area and Sumner County and, and all those areas and then you start seeing apparatus and crews roll in from Memphis the far the other end of the state that are coming and I've you know I've heard people say that it was a convoy yeah. coming up I-40 and coming down I-40 from the northeast part of the state so I'm, I'm so appreciative because it had it not been for everyone else's willingness to drop what they were doing and come to help Gatlinburg and Sevier County, it could have been significantly worse than what it ended up being. Yeah, it's that they call it the volunteer state, we know, and that truly was significant to have everybody respond. Greg, what was the moment for you? So you got over 2,000 people, maybe 2,500 responders that are there the emergent phase is over so you're you're living in the fight or flight for two weeks i can't imagine if you got any sleep it wasn't long sleep if if you did there's no recovery what was the turning point for you when you realized what happened where it really set in for you and you're looking around maybe the emotional moment or the Oh my gosh! I can like, I can now think what happened instead of reacting. Tell us about that moment. So when the sun come up the next morning, uh, was it really a sunny day? But uh, it was daylight. It was rainy. There were no new fires being spawned because of the rain, but there were still a lot of fires burning. And I just felt I had to go do an assessment. So I told one of my counterparts, hey, you, you man the ship for a moment. I've got to drive through town. So I've, we've already been awake for 24 plus hours. No rest, no sleep, just have been on our feet going and I took a couple of people with me, and I said, let's, let's go do an assessment. And it was literally like driving through a war zone. We 
would turn down roads and even though I'd been there a thousand times I was trying to to acclimate myself to where am I because all the street signs are gone they've burned down or they're blown away from the hurricane force winds and the landmark structures that your mind is so trained to see are gone so all you see is burning piles of rubble and foundations and and stages uh, homes in different stages of being burned still on fire smoke everywhere and you go all over town and you see that everywhere and you begin to wrap your mind around the size and the complexity and we have to keep going because now our mission is shifting to we have to get boots on the ground at every single structure we've got to implement an urban search and rescue plan and we've got to go to all 2545 structures whether they are completely gone and they're in a pile of rubble or they they were partially burned and we got to start checking for any survivors while at the same time praying that we don't find victims so that logistically is very hard to try to piece together enough teams to start checking the box on 2,545 structures and then inevitably you discover your first fatality and then you discover your second fatality and your mind begins to think oh wow how many are there going to be pray there's none now that there's one you pray there's not two now that there's two you pray that there's not three and that process takes days days to get in there because it's so labor intensive you're there they're in there digging out some debris and then they they might find signs that that someone was was in that structure so that's there was really no time to really rest or breathe because every mission when it was completed created the next mission so it it was a process I need to go back because my mind is in that place. You and I have been doing this a long time. We've been on fatality scenes. And I wanted to make a point that we're not talking about a small town. We are talking about homes spread across acres and acres and acres. This is not just a single location. We're talking in the mountains that homes are not on top of each other. But I want to go back to the point that you mentioned because I'm I'm there in the moment and I'm thinking about this of the stress and I, I for everybody listening to these words I, I want to although this is this is intense um, when your team goes into a home every single piece of debris that they are pulling and turning over they are searching for someone that has died yes the intensity of that i i am glad people don't understand the weight of that but it's not just seeing a fatality in the car we are talking that everything looks like someone that has been burned because it's hard to tell the difference unless you see a certain body part the intensity of that stress is 
very hard to describe. I know the magnitude of that for your team was on another, it's on another planet because they, they are seeing it in their mind. They may only find one or two, but they have found many more in their, in their mind. And then the stories come where you find someone and you're like, how close were they to getting out? It's tragic, absolutely tragic. Walk us through how, after the event, and you find out, correct me if I'm wrong, there were 14 that died in that. Was it more than that? No, it was 14. It was 14. And injuries, how many were injured? Did you guys ever figure that out? Because I know people were going to the hospital on their own, and there were burns. And I've, I've never heard an exact number of injuries that were attributed to it because some people that were maybe there on vacation and they were able to escape, they might have traveled all the way home. They might have traveled three or four states away and then might have sought care for something because they were uh, had, had a cough from some smoke inhalation or whatever else. So I don't know that we would ever be able to track all of the exposures and injuries to that. Uh, but the definitive number is the 14 fatalities. Okay. So I'm not going to use this when did things get back to normal? Because it was years, obviously. When was the event over and the rebuilding phase came to be where now you're not in the proactive phase, but now, or, or you're in the proactive phase and not reactive phase where you're now doing an assessment on your team and you're figuring out what you need. How long of a period was it where you're out of crisis and you're out of emergent and now you're into, okay, I can breathe Let's do an assessment. How long was the that time period for you? It seems like it was forever. Yeah. Because it seemed like the emergency phase and the different levels of that through mitigation uh, was ongoing. Uh, but all the other outside agencies went home when, when everybody else that was there to assist us, all the mutual aid, all the auto aid, Everybody was gone except for FEMA and a lot of the volunteer agencies that were there to help clean debris and everything else. When that happened, uh, it was a few weeks after the fire. But then we realized we've got to, you know, mental health, Eric, is such an important aspect in emergency services. And it's, it's been front page news for a few years now and and we're paying more attention to it now than we ever have but that's when we really wanted to get the critical incident stress debriefing teams in to talk to our people and and let them have a chance to vent about what they saw uh, what they witnessed what they experienced their own losses and the losses that they saw in the community and that was a much larger piece than, than we had ever thought that it would be. Um, and you ever wonder, okay, are we doing enough? Um, I hope that, that, that we did do enough. Only some of our people could answer that question effectively. But we were still doing some mental health exercises and bringing other people in from other agencies uh, several months later. So we didn't do just one flash in the pan and say, I hope you're okay, all right, get back to work. We, we tried to, to encounter that. But, you know, there were people 
that after that fire, um, they didn't want to do it anymore. Yeah, I bet. You know, there was a, a walk away from the profession from a certain number of people, both law enforcement, fire, and EMS. So it, it was definitely a, a life-changing event. Yeah. So, Greg, I'm going to focus on you for a minute. There was something that you and I had talked about before, and I really want to ask you this question from a, a leadership perspective, from your, your, your part of this. You had shared with me that within a matter of hours, you, you were dealing with the responders, the community, the family members, the people that lost, people that they love, your team is finding them. You're, you're, in the, you're reacting and you're trying to take care of your team and you get notified that CNN and Fox News and media personalities are wanting to talk to you and you're having to do that. How does one get their head wrapped around you're getting ready to be on TV nationally, maybe internationally, and it's even hard to probably breathe because of the stress that you're in? What was that moment like for you? You talk about having to shift gears because you get pulled out of a command post where you're orchestrating and you're X's and O's and you're making sure that you've got these resources and these people and these spots and someone steps in and says, hey, you know, you're needed in the other room. They're calling for a large press conference and you walk in and there's nothing shy of 30, 40 cameras and boom mics and, and there you see CNN and Fox News and all the local affiliates and the ones from across the state line in the next community and it's they're wanting information they're wanting the story and um, that's one thing that that hopefully the the people that have seen that is uh, I just I pride myself on I'm just going to stand up there and I'm going to tell you the truth and, and be transparent and, and appeal to everybody that you know, this is the time that, that this community needs your prayers and, and they need your support, and there's a lot of stuff going on that we're dealing with. But it's definitely flipping a switch in your mind and going from one area to the next. There's people calling me the next day going, you were on the front page of the London Times in England. Oh, my goodness. And you get these uh, the Huffington Post and Washington and, and all of this stuff. And it, at that point in time, I just remember – go ahead and ask me what questions you need to ask me because I've got to get back into the command post. Yeah. So a lot of those, um, you know, we began to do a couple of press releases a day. We were doing those each day. And our, you'll, you'll see on some of those that as soon as I'm done, I step away and I, I look and I nod at the city manager and the mayor that, okay, I'm, I've got to go back down to the command post. So there were a few of them that, that were very long. They were drawn out press conferences because there was a lot of questions to be answered and a lot of people wanted answers. And, and some of those questions we were able to answer and some of them we didn't know either. That's a, I, I saw, as I shared with you, I saw one of the interviews last night. It was less than two minutes. And knowing you the way that I do, I felt how you were and it, it was, um, it was impressive to watch you in that, in the way you role modeled that, because it was intense. And you know, as a leader, you have to do multiple things. And Greg, how do you feel? We're getting ready to head to Gatlinburg. 
for our annual leadership conference through TASA. When you drive into the town and you know things that we don't because you live there and you were fire chief, you can pick out some of the damage. And there's still some obvious damage, but you can look through that. How do you feel when you go into town right now knowing that that was one of the most significant professional challenges you've ever dealt with? It's different. I'm going to look through a set of eyes that no one else has the opportunity to look through. So when I go in there, it's again, uh, I've, I used this quote a second ago, but it's, it's a roller coaster because I see the growth. I see how the town has rebounded and not only got back to where they were, but they've surpassed it. They've done a phenomenal job of, of doing that. It is a resilient community, and they coined the term after the fires, Mountain Tough. But then I can also drive by vacant lots or structures or certain landmarks and be able to list the names of those who died there. And I can drive by the places where firefighters' homes were that are gone or police officers' homes were that were gone and, and I know that certain places where I was at during the fire and, and I experienced a certain trigger or whether it was the wind, whether it was the wind blowing full-size dumpsters down the center of the road, the smoke. And, and there's a lot of those things are still triggers for those locals because the people that I'm still friends with that live there, that lived through that disaster, that nightmare, um, I've seen them post time after time. If, if the weather's bad, they've had a few bad fires since then. And anytime it gets smoky, it, it triggers them. Yeah. It, just waking up in the morning and having a real thick fog, it triggers them, a little bit of anxiety. So none of that I don't think will ever go away. Yeah. So it, but at the same time, I think it's good to be able to remember it. So currently, we're approaching seven years since the event. Is that right? Yep. Since November of this year will be okay. seven years. So, Greg, let's talk about now. Do you think about it? I know you think about it, but I'm I'm really trying to dig deep. Like, are you are you bothered by it? What? How do you deal with it now? The gravity of this is on another level. After the fires. And then going through the recovery phase and going through with TEMA and, do, and FEMA and doing all of the paperwork and filling out, making sure we've got all the 214s and trying to help all of the help, the assisting communities get their reimbursement. It was a solid year of anywhere from 12 to 16 hour days of doing paperwork. And, and we had, then we commissioned a after action review. So we had to go through an after-action review that took several months. So you are rehashing all of the details. You're reliving all of the facts, and you're, you're thumbing through all of the records, all of the audio recordings and the 911 recordings and everything. So 
for at least the first two years because this was such a unique story. Then I was getting asked to travel across the country and tell this story. So we had a, a Great Smoky Mountains wildfire presentation that I was in Georgia and South Carolina and Oklahoma and Nevada and Texas and was being asked to go all over the country because it had never happened in a place like this before. There had never been a non-coastal community that had to evacuate its entire community before. So there was a lot of firsts there. So there were lessons learned and, and people wanted to hear that. So it was impossible for me not to think about it daily for a few years. But as the years have gone on, I don't think about it daily. I don't think about it weekly. But it depends on what I see, what I hear, what I smell. There's certain things that are the trigger, and I'll think back to that night. I'll think back to the, the days after in the recovery, and, and I remember seeing a car on the side of the road that was completely melted in the aluminum wheels melted off the car and the aluminum trailed down the road and then when the temperature cooled it solidified so you could pick up a piece of aluminum wheel that's now 10 feet long in a in a stream those things are are you know i'll never forget that i've never seen that and you know we had several soldiers that were there that that were deployed there from the, the Tennessee Guard and the 278th and we had a special debris removal team from the Air Force and talking to those soldiers um, and those airmen they all said the same thing those guys that had been deployed to war zones in Iraq and in some of those areas they said this looks like a war zone we've been boots on the ground in those conflicts and this looks like places that's been bombed so those images I don't think I'll ever get rid of but um thankfully you know me included you know that that whole command staff we we went through some some debriefing and met with chaplains and everything else just so we are not just carrying all this on our shoulders and in our minds it's so therapeutic just to be able to talk about it and it's it's still there it's still emotion it's still a passion you know, for it, I will forever be thankful to the, the men and women of, of the Gatlinburg Fire Department. They did such a great job. All of those responders, the local ones and, and the ones that came from all across this state for what they did. There are a lot of unsung heroes that were laypersons that were out there evacuating people, that were driving people up and down off of that mountain and helping them rescue. There's, there's a million people they could probably tell a million stories from that that uh, disaster. Wow, Greg, we've been talking almost an hour already, really? and I knew when we started and we hit record. And I want to talk to you about this for hours more. There's so many nuggets, and you've shared with us. And I want to ask you this last question, and I, I think there's a lot of value in this. But could you share with us any lessons that you learned from the event that everyone listening to your voice could benefit from? Because I pray that none of us experience what you did. But share with us in closing some things that you want us to learn from what you've been through. 
one thing I learned that night was never say or ask what else can go wrong. Because after the fires were spreading and all of that was going on, I remember every radio report or every alert that we got was something worse. We lose all internet. We lose all power. Then the fire started approaching us. So we're in the command post. We're out on the east end of town. We're in the bay at fire headquarters. And we've got a THP strike team command. We've got fire and EMS command. Rick Valentine, the director of, of Sevier County Ambulance Service, I, I called him and I said, I'm going to need your help. I'm, I, there's no way I can manage the fire and the ambulance piece of this. So he took over and took the EMS piece off of my plate there for a while, and I'm so thankful that he did that. I, I owe him a, a great debt of gratitude for that. But then the fire captain calls me on the radio, and he says, you need to evacuate the command post now. There's a 40 to 60 foot wall of flames that's coming up the highway and it's coming right at you nonstop. And he said, it, it, we're probably going to lose that facility. So shortly after he said that, we lose power in the command post. It, it's pitch black. The generators are firing up for the emergency lights. So we're trying to get the doors open and grab our computers and everything and go into our vehicles and travel further east to set up a new command post. Um, and then the next thing happens and they say all of our hydrants are running dry because, you know, Gatlinburg's a mountainous community. You've got pump houses. You've got to have pumps to pump water uphill. And the heat was so intense, it was causing the pump houses to fail. So now you don't have water to fight fire. So I remember saying, my goodness, what else? I've learned, don't ask that question because you're going to get shown what else can happen. The the leadership lesson to this is trust your instincts and trust your people. Because even though I wasn't there, they fell back on their training. And out of a few thousand responders, there were no significant injuries to responders there were no loss of life to responders and to have a firestorm disaster of that magnitude with all the falling trees i mean literally thousands of trees falling around them because the wind was so horrendous the power lines the 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 cabins would catch on fire in these 500 to 1000 gallon propane tanks everything would melt away and they would be on fire and they would start tumbling down the mountain. So you've got this thousand pound bomb or 500 pound flaming bomb that's rolling down the hill because it's everything that was supporting it has give way. Entire road structures burned up. So there was a lot of roads that had to be replaced because the asphalt, it it melted the oil binder in the asphalt and now that it's some of those roads were undergirded with railroad ties when they were built several years ago. It got deep and it caught those on fire. So they were major road failures and everything else. So I can't imagine what some of those firefighters witnessed as they were driving in. I can't imagine what some of those tourists and some of those residents of that area witnessed as they were driving out, just as you referenced in the video. that was, was It's gone viral. It's been seen probably over a million times. Yeah. 
Um, so that was that to me. Um, being able to trust your people, and then to have your people come back and say we were glad you were where you were, calling the shots yeah. for us, um, having that mutual love, that agape love and respect yeah. for for your people, and that they have that for you. That's something that you'll never forget. Wow. Greg, I'm honored. I know this podcast is going to be shared across the country. And I know you've added value to many people. And we are grateful for all that you do, for everything that you've helped us with. And uh, you make us better. And we are truly grateful for the time you spent with us today. Thank you. We uh we may have to do a part two if there's uh, an outcry that they want some more of this story because there's there's a lot of it. There really is. But um, you are not going to uh, you, you are going to be on this podcast more than one time. I, I promise. So it is an invitation. We have so much that we can talk about. And, absolutely. Uh, Thank you for having me. And, and this has been such a rewarding career for me. And it has given me so much more than than I've been able to give back. And I, and I thank people like you for carrying the torch. We are so thankful to bring this conversation to you today. I am confident that it added value. Here are a couple of quick updates before we sign off. Please check the TIMSA website for educational updates and mark your calendars for the TIMSA conference that will be in Murfreesboro, July 19th through the 21st. This is a top-rated conference and we would love to see you there. Sessions include instructor coordinator, pediatrics, critical care and leadership, A link will be in the show notes for more information. We want to thank you for what you do. And remember, the most important person that you will ever lead is you. We are honored that you joined us today for the Timsa Leadership Podcast. And we look forward to visiting with you again soon.